If I haven't had the pleasure of uh, meeting you, my name my name's Tom. I'm the preaching pastor here. I, um, I'm usually standing up, but I broke my leg a couple of weeks back, so uh, thank you for being gracious with me in that. Um, we're, we're in Mark chapter 16. We have been uh, traveling through Mark for a... Uh, going on two and a half years or so. Many of you would not have been here as we started the journey, uh, 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 but, but uh, uh, most of us will have been probably picked up the last at least few months, even, even some of the more uh, new regular ones off us. But where we find ourselves this week, we've actually finished the book of Mark already. Just as a little trick for you, last week I said that from verse 9 onwards in the chapter uh, 16th chapter of Mark is in fact not original, in my own scholarly opinion, it is not original to the authorship of Mark, who is a close companion of Peter and writing under his apostolic authority. And since it is not original to Mark, who is writing under Peter, it is therefore, we can conclude, not inspired. In other words, it's in the Bible, if by Bible we mean you know, the English translations of, of, uh, of what we're going to call ESV, NLT, uh, uh, NIV, things like that. Sure, it's in this book. Bible means book, collection, library, but it's not inspired scripture. Now, much of what we're going to be doing today is actually just, it might feel a little bit like a lecture. Um, I, I, uh, uh, I don't want it to be dry. I, I hope that we're, we are intellectually and intentionally engaged. We uh, we are a church that believes that uh, it is not just a matter of coming to church and being being whipped up into a frenzy of spiritual excitement, but we rather believe that God renews us as we understand. So one of the, the primary things that God wants us to do in coming to church and in Christian maturity is changing our mindsets through learning. The more that we understand the Word of God, the more like Christ we are able to be. So we're going to actually spend a bit of time just sort of going through the history and the science of why is this section in the Bible if it's not original, and why are we not all running out of here screaming because we can't trust the Bible anymore? Why is that not an appropriate thing to do? That, that's that's going to be my, my aim today, and I really do pray and trust the Lord God that, that uh, I will exceed as those faith, you faithful do lean in and hear what the Spirit says. So um, this, this is a, there's a tremendous reason in doing this. Um, uh, uh, there's, there's much evidence. I'm just going to say from the outset before we get really deep into it, there's tremendous evidence to believe historically and uh, even as we look into the text itself that it's not original to Mark, that this was actually inserted later. Um, and, and the reason why we're, we're, we're spending some time looking into the history of the manuscripts is because, first of all, I would guess that by a poll today, how many people are very familiar with the science and the history of the manuscripts that, that bring forth the English translations of our Bible, very few of us would be confident in that. That's one thing. The second thing that piggybacks on that is that that becomes a tremendous focal point for skeptic or atheistic or liberal theologians to attack, to come to Christians and say, don't you realize that the manuscripts of the Bible or we don't have the originals or, or there's errors in the Bible and they'll throw statistics out at you, which having not heard before, you might reel back a bit and think, that's pretty central. Because some, some people who would attack the Bible and traditional historical Christian faith, they don't need to argue you on inspiration that God wrote the Bible. They don't need to argue you on God's sovereignty. They don't need to argue you on justification by faith alone or monotheism or the Trinity. They don't need to do that. Because all they need to do is attack that very thing and undermine your confidence in the very thing from which you get all of those doctrines. It's no point arguing what the Word of God says 
if we have zero confidence if we have the word of God. So this becomes a very central attack of the skeptics. And this is why I don't want to just just, uh, brush over this. I'm sure many of your versions, as we look there now into Mark 16... Many of your versions will have a bracket around verse 9 to 20, or maybe uh, it's all in italics, or maybe it's just got a little footnote describing something, but uh, uh, it will say something like the earliest manuscripts end mark at uh, at chapter 6, verse 18, Um, uh, something like that. Uh, so, So they've included it in here, but made a note, this probably isn't legitimate. But because historically many Christians have believed it to be so, they leave it in for our study. So I don't want to just keep, I don't want to just finish at verse eight and then pick up a new book. That would probably worry you, wonder what we're doing. I also don't want to just keep on preaching it as if it's the same uh, uh, inspired scripture and then have you think, why does my Bible say these things? Do I have a liberal translation? Do I need to throw this out? What are, what's going on? So we're going to spend some time looking at it because I believe it to be so very central. <clears throat> um, uh, some of the questions we'll be asking is, how did it get in here? One of the other questions we'll be asking is, how can I be sure other books out there didn't miss the train to get in the Bible, which we're supposed to be? We'll be asking the question, how do we know that there's not other stuff in here that really shouldn't be? Like, how do we know Genesis through Exodus is not actually just a little tack on later? Somebody came up with an impressive beginning. No, no, no. We're going to ask all all those sorts of questions. But I'm going to read Mark chapter 16. I'll just read verse 9 through to 13. Uh, We're actually going to pretty much... uh, 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 preach on the Great Commission next week in a certain way that doesn't rely entirely on this text because it's not inspired. So we're going to finish Mark 16 with a bang, Mark, the the, the Gospel of Mark with a bang next week. This week is a bit more of a background study. But anyway, this is what it says. Uh, After verse 8, when the women ran out and they were afraid, verse 9 continues, Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that she was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. Now we're going to, you know, we'll go all the way to verse 20. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table and he rebuked them. For their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new languages. They will pick up serpents with their hands. They will drink, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. If they lay their hands on the sick, they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, I will not say, may God bless the reading of his own inspired word in our midst this morning, because we did not just read it. But may God bless us as we gather around to learn about his word. Amen? Amen, Amen, nonetheless. So, um, one of the... the, the, uh, uh, things that starts being very important as you dig into more and more church history, Bible translation, and theology is you need to have an understanding of the translation process from the original languages into what we now have as our English Bibles. Um, uh, 
the, the, the enemies, as we were saying before, the enemies might tell us, our opponents might say, you can believe all of this about the Bible, that you believe your tradition hands down and the, and the texts say so, but if they can convince us that this is not in fact what the apostles wrote, we can have no trust that what is here is in fact the word of God. I mean, the word of God might be out there, but it's not in here. If they do that, our faith can crumble if it is not rightly taught and if it is wrongly placed. <clears throat> the process of the original New Testament gospels and letters written down by the, by the apostles and their students, the process of those letters being uh, turned into what we now have today in our English translations, this is what we will call manuscript history. The autographs is what is called the very first, you know, when Paul wrote down the letter of the Romans, that is now called an autograph, the actual original letter to the Romans. Let me say this, we have zero of the autographs of the, of the New Testament. We have none of, now I think that's a tremendous thing, because I know how my Catholic mates venerate and worship a tooth that apparently belongs to the donkey that Jesus rode on one day. They'll travel 15,000 miles, go and then bow down to a tooth like that. Can you imagine what even good reformed people who love the word of God, sola scriptura, would do if we knew that Romans 9, penned by Paul, was sitting somewhere in a museum? That would be insane. I would go there. I'd, I'd, I'd live there. So it's probably good we don't have those things. But that does not in any way undermine the confidence that we have that the words of Paul transferred accurately and reliably into our English translations. What we don't have is the original autographs. What we do have is ancient manuscripts. Now, manuscripts are copies of editions of the, uh, the originals uh, that were copied down by scribes and pastors, uh, etc., in those early centuries. Now, if you count all of the manuscripts that we have from the, the first century up until about the 15th century, because then the printing press was, was invented and we don't have handwritten copies anymore, uh, up until that point, we have 25,000 historical manuscripts of copies of each other in different editions and different languages in both Syriac and Latin and English, uh, uh, eventually English after the 15th century, but the ancient manuscripts are Syriac, Latin, and Greek. In fact, we have 5,400 uh, manuscripts of some kind in the Greek language, which is the same language that the, the New Testament was originally written in, Koine Greek. So in other words, we have this mass of historical editions which we are then able to, to compare to each other and see where they overlap and see where there are minor errors and whatnot. And so we have this great amount of resources by which we can reconstruct what the originals would have said. This is called manuscript science or, or a history of understanding the manuscripts. <clears throat> Here's an example. <clears throat> if, as we're thinking about the manuscript database, we have 25,000 different languages across the centuries. 5,400 of them are in the Greek. Here's an example. If today I, I put uh, the London Baptist up on, on the back, or, or maybe my own version of a, hist of, a, of a historical doctrine, I put it up on the screen and asked all of you, the hundred somethings of us sitting in here this morning, to write down a copy of what I've just said, of the original autograph, we might have 100 something copies of that edition. Now, if I then give you a few weeks and say, go and actually get other people to copy this, I want as many people as possible to have a version of what I've just said, we might then go out and share with 10 further people and, and come back in a few weeks, having there been 10,000 different versions or manuscripts of the original. 
Now, at some point, you might say, well, isn't that probably going to have a, a whole bunch of errors in it? They might be slightly different. Some of us are on the brighter end. Some of us struggle to spend the word, the, spell the word and. You know, we're, we're, we're a mixed bunch, different ages, different languages, different handwriting. Is it likely that they'll all be the same? And the simple answer is, of course not. We don't expect it to be. But here's the question. Is there a way, if my original was lost, is there a way that we might think logically and be able to say, can we be pretty confident that we have the exact version of what we have, we originally had on the screen? The answer is yes. Now, if some have gone into different languages or different people's handwritings and there are errors, it's very simple to tell and to think logically about which ones are likely more trustworthy. Of course, the first round of questioning is, who are the earliest copyists? In other words, who is sitting right here with us today compared to somebody who is copying a different version two weeks later? That's one. Another question that we can ask is, if there's errors, what's the likely process of those errors coming in? Is it likely that uh, uh, somebody added extra sentences in when they were trying to copy accurately, or is it more likely that somebody skipped a line and missed some sentences if they were trying to be accurate? And of course, the second is the case. And this is how we do manuscript history. We have these 25,000 copy uh, manuscripts. Some of them are small fragments. Some of them are very large amounts of New Testament books. Some of them are entire books. And some of them are, the, are basically the entire New Testament. But what the scientists of this kind of uh, discipline of manuscript history do, they look at all of them and they say, which ones were the earliest? Which ones have the, the clearest signs of not being tampered with? And we come away with a very, very confident clarity that what now we have is a translation of all of those. I'll say one more thing before we uh, move on to the next point. We don't have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies or translations of translations of translations. What we have in our Bible is the English transa translation coming from the right out of the Greek that goes back into the first few centuries. We're not copying the German, which came out of the Latin, which came out of the Greek. We're going right back to the originals if you have a good version of the Bible. Okay, so not a translation of a translation. Also, likely, the copies that we do have, the manuscripts from those early centuries, probably not a hundredth generation copies. They probably haven't been copied, 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 and copied, but rather the same sort of uh, original or one of the very early ones was passed around that it could then be copied so that you have a large amount of first edition copies. Let's keep going. If you do want more details on this, uh, there is a teaching series on our YouTube that I developed back when I was first pastor called uh, a, a defi a, uh, Defining and Defending the New Testament Canon. I hope that will be helpful if you want to go into it in a bit more depth. We tracking so far? We going Okay. Not our usual normal line-by-line -line exposition. I hope yet we are still finding it very, very helpful. So, of those five, um, uh, 5.5 around about, 5,500 Greek manuscripts that we have from uh, 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 antiquity, these ones, are, the 5,500 are Greek, the same language as the original New Testament was written in. We have these basically books, it's called a codex in Latin, when they first started moving from scrolls to actual bound books. We have one called the, the Codex Sinaiticus. It was pretty early, in 325. That's what was uh, pretty much agreed on at the Council of Nicaea, not created. They didn't cut out a whole bunch of books, this, but they finally and formally agreed on those books of the whole New Testament as early as 325. Uh, that was the, uh, in Nicaea, the Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, 
The Codex Vaticanus was also the whole Bible, and that was around a similar time. Now, both of those versions, let me tell you, end Mark 16 at verse 8. Also, in the uh, Syriac manuscripts, in about the 200s, we have uh, those portions also very very early, 200s. They're also ending Mark 16 at verse 8. We have um, about 350 of those. Then what you can do is also look back, as we ask the question, is, Mark, is the long ending of Mark 16 original? We can also go back to what we call the patristics, or the church fathers. And you can reconstruct the entire New Testament based purely on their quotes in their letters and sermons. And so you can put it all together, and what we find is an overwhelming uh, testimony that they stop quoting Mark at chapter 16, verse 8. Now, as we read through that, was there not some killer verses in there? And then Jesus arose and took his seat at the right hand of God from where he saved people, and they went out and proclaimed his name upon the nations, and the Spirit accompanied them with signs. They're awesome verses, as if you're not going to be using them when you're writing sermons, scriptures, and uh, 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 letters, and things like that. Of course you would, and yet they don't. That is the the testimony of the, the fathers. Now, here's the point. Most of them all agree. Most of the manuscripts and the people of the early centuries all agree that Mark 16 ends at verse 8, but in a broader sense, as you're just thinking about scripture entirely, they all agree together. Like you take those 5,500 Greek manuscripts, let alone the the 25,000 other uh, language manuscripts of Syriac and Latin, you put them all together, there is an overwhelming, utterly astounding agreement. It's not like you're having 50% overlap and this version of Mark says that Jesus was a woman and this version says that his mother was, was, uh, was Stephanie, not Mary, and this version says that Peter was also, you know, a woman or that this was a child, not an adult. It, it doesn't disagree like that. They are in overwhelming majority. Now, you might ask, wouldn't there be some errors? There's got to be some errors. In 25,000 different manuscripts, there's got to be some disagreements, and of course there are. First of all, None of our major doctrines of the Christian faith rely on any of the disputed texts. So take, for example, a a section in John's Gospel, a paragraph there that that is uh, non-original, a a verse that's in 1 John, this section in Mark 16. We don't rely on any of these passages to prove any of our major doctrines. In fact, those verses usually uh, are a little bit unhelpful. So don't, don't, don't be afraid. Oh, if we get rid of Mark 16, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? How do we know Jesus sat at the right hand of God? How do we know that the gospel went out to all nations? It's already testified abundantly in the rest of the New Testament. But also, the vast majority of the errors in those 25,000 manuscripts, where they disagree, most of them are copying errors. Like there's been a dash where it should have been a comma, and in the certain languages, that'll throw off the whole word. They've missed a line. They've added a word. They've spelled something wrong. It's simple things like that. Nothing at all that is overwhelmingly worrying. And then we get to this, Mark 16. Now, that was not a slip of the pen. This was an intentional insertion into the biblical categories, which which the early centuries knew about, but still ended Mark 16 at verse 8. Let's start asking some questions. How does such an enormous section find itself added into the Bible, and why are we sure that it's not original? Let me start with the second one. The reason we know it's not original is, as we've said, historically, the testimony of the church seems to be that they knew about the long ending, and there was actually other endings as well, other versions, and they chose not to insert it. 
Even in the year 900, we have a guy called Ephraim saying, in the best of the manuscripts, Mark finishes at verse 8 in chapter 16. Uh, And there are examples, as we've said, that predate him by hundreds of years. Eusebius, writing in 300, he he, he says himself in a letter that Mark 16 verse 9 and onwards is likely not original. So we have the historical testimony that it's likely not original. Secondly, the reason that we know Mark 16, the long ending, is likely not original and not inspired by God is logically. We asked this question before with my example of the, you know, of the whiteboard. If you're, if you're a Christian who believes highly in the word of God, that God has revealed his truth through inspired apostles, and we have this uh, given to us in the scriptures, in the gospels and the letters of the apostles, and you knew that it was a weighty thing to be copying down the word of God, and you get to Mark 18, is it more likely, and we, we looked at this last week, didn't we? You get to Mark 16 verse 8, not 18. You get to verse 8, and you're left, it's a cliffhanger. We're expecting Jesus to rock up like in all the other Gospels. We're expecting Jesus to do some miracles and give a bit of a sermon like he does in the other Gospels. And apparently, that was the case throughout church history. Everybody was annoyed at Mark for finishing at verse 8. But if we were consistent, you'd also be annoyed at Mark for starting where he started in chapter 1. He starts smack bang in the middle of John the Baptist preaching, says nothing about the virgin birth, about the angelic visitations. He just right into the action. So Mark is a, is a summarized, quick, action-packed version anyway. We should not, I think we should stop at verse 8 and not believe that there was more coming. Nonetheless, some people believe that there ought to have been. Now, now is it more logical that you would read Mark 16 as a Christian scribe who venerates scripture and say, you know what, 9 to 20, bit original, hands getting sore, prefer not to write, I'm out of parchment, IGA is closed, it's a Sunday, let's just finish it at verse 8. Is it more likely someone's going to say that or that reading a short ending, and some people did theorize that, that Mark had attempted to finish it, but Peter had died already, so he couldn't, or that it was lost to history. Now, is it more likely that then you would add to it something helpful that is truly just a summary of the other gospel's endings? That's more likely than somebody cutting out a large portion of scripture. Um, also, we can see this by internal evidence. In other words, I'm not going to bore us with this, but in other words, you read Mark 16, 9 to 20, and Mark uses 14 words that he has never used before in the whole gospel so far. So his language starts changing, which is weird. Also, he does a different thing with locations. We were all in Jerusalem, and now he's all over the shop in Galilee and at different places in the last 12 verses, which he doesn't usually do without announcing it. Also, uh, we get this this spot in uh, uh, verse... um, Uh, nine, we've literally just been hearing about Mary Magdalene. We already know who she is. And then in verse nine, you get an introduction to this lady, Mary Magdalene, of whom Jesus cast out seven demons. We already know her. Why in the middle of the story about her do we have a new introduction about her? That's quite strange. Uh, It's also the fact that the writing style changes. The last 12 verses don't really, it sounds like it's written by a different author when the exegetes really pull it apart and compare it to the other portions of Mark's gospel. So for these reasons, it suggests that it's not the same author as the rest of the book. So in all of this, we find, we find it missing in early manuscripts. We find it missing in multiple languages and we find it affirmed as not biblical, not scripture, in each of those languages by many fathers, and it's absent from the more trustworthy of the Greek translations. Some were more trustworthy than others, and the better ones 
were lacking it. So we have to ask, why is it in? We have already said, because it felt incomplete. Some scribe at some point very early on, in like the early couple of hundred years, they thought that they had a better ending than Mark had. They popped it in, and it was, um, uh, for a lot of people, it was all they knew. It took some time to be able to start comparing and going, oh, it's been, a, it's been about 150 years now. These people have this ending to the gospel. These people have this ending. These people have this ending. And these people end at verse 8. What's original? And so they start all comparing. But for many Christians, it was all that they knew. It was on the gospel as it, by the time it arrived at them. But also, historically and in the English-speaking word world, the King James Version was translated from what we call the Textus Receptus. Now, you might remember 2% of everything we say today. That's fine. Everything's on YouTube. Go back and listen. Also, big point, you don't need to distrust the Bible. That's where we're going. God's grace has been flowing throughout history to preserve the Bible. But this point stands that the Textus Receptus was a, a Greek version, a new Greek version of the New Testament, which was uh, written by Erasmus in the 1500s. And that became the basis of the King James Version and many of the Reformers' Bibles. It became later on that the science and our history and our archaeology picked up so that in later centuries, we've been able to look further back than the Textus Receptus. We can see further manuscripts that go back into history further than Erasmus wrote and say, hey, there's errors in the Textus Receptus. There's errors in what Erasmus wrote, which the King James Version was based on. And so we have a different sort of school of interpretation and translations that produce the King James Version, and then other versions like uh, uh, the ESV, the NIV, the CSB, and things like that. So that's why we have different translations. They just come from slightly different schools of thought. But that's why Mark 16 is in the Bible, because the King James Version and other versions, when, when the printing press started pushing out through the Reformation all these Bibles, uh, it was already a part of their tradition that it would be in there. Now here's, I think Christians do themselves, especially as we engage with skeptics, we do ourselves a disservice when we define our doctrine strongly but wrongly, right? Strongly but wrongly. Maybe just taken as an example, the LBC that we just uh, heard from Vic. You might, you might hear somebody say, the word of God is the only inspired revelation from God. To which you might then add to the definition and strongly hold, no one can know anything about God or his truth outside of the Bible. The Bible is the only word of God. And you, you live and die on that premise. You will actually get yourself into trouble, both biblically and in apologetics, because that's not what the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture and this uh, uh, special revelation teaches us. As Vic said, it is not that there is nothing to learn about God in nature and outside of the Bible. It is that the saving realities and those, those, uh, the, the, the gracious realities that bring us to Christ and salvation and redemption and those specific things about God are only found in the Word of God. And some, some, some base-level foundation things can be known about God through Scripture. Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare things about God but only the word of God make us wise unto salvation. So, so we come to this and we go, if you believe the inspiration of scripture, you're going to get yourself into trouble if you start defining that as saying the ESV is the God-breathed word of the living triune Lord. It's usually not that. Usually it's the KJV guys saying that, right? 
The KJV is the only word, uh, inspired word of God in this language. So, so in other words, you can start pulling words apart and say, see, the of is before the and. And that means this for this doctrine. Now we can't say that. What we say is that the, the apostles, as they wrote scripture in their original languages, were infilled by the Spirit, superintended by his will, so that every word that they wrote was true and given by God. Yes, they wrote in their own time. Yes, they wrote with their own emotions, with the, in their own specific circumstance, according to their own memories and perspectives, and yet no error comes through their pen. Nothing untrue is allowed to touch those original inspired texts because God was prever- preserving his truth as he inspired it through the apostles. However, Once that starts being translated and copied as God definitely demanded and expected that it would, we we, we acknowledge the fact that only in as much as a copy or a translation reflects the truth of the original, is that still the word of God? So am I confident to pick up this every Sunday, read it for us, and then say, may God bless the reading of his own inerrant word in our midst? Yes, I am. Because I, I know what we're talking about today. I've studied this, and I can confidently say this is an accurate representation of what was originally written by the apostles. However, this is why when we make real deep theological arguments, we will go back to the original language and say, well, what does the Greek say there? Because the English might be wrong. The English might be misleading at least if it uses not wrong, misleading if it uses different phrases of words. What does the original say? We always go back to the original language when it comes to arguments and controversies of the faith. So what we can say is that the inspiration of Scripture that God breathed out through the apostles is attested by Scripture itself. Okay, this was not 19th century theologians, which is what some people are going to try and tell us. It was the 19th century theologians like, you know, B.B. Warfield who started, who made up this idea of inspiration. The word of God is perfect. It's breathed out by God. No, no, no. It's just men writing what they thought about God and it can be helpful. Friends, if that's the case, go home, stop sacrificing, sleep in, sin all you want. There's nothing after we die. Or if there is, we can't know it. If the scripture cannot be entirely trusted, we can know nothing, not just about God and salvation, nothing of truth at all in this world. And people live like it. However, it is not simply made up by men. It is rather attested to by scripture itself. Scripture, the Christian scriptures, speak of itself in ways that no other so-called sacred writing of other religions speak of itself. You know, Get out of your mind if you hear skeptics tell you, you know, the, the Bible, the, the Hindu scriptures, the, uh, the, 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 the Quran, all the, they all say the same things about themselves. Totally false. No other document speaks the way that the Bible speaks of itself. It makes impossibly high claims. Here's what 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 tells us. Peter says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Did men speak? Yes. Did they make errors? No. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit in their writing. Men were writing down the words that were breathed out by God. 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's my conviction that Paul also meant the very words he was writing. He didn't just mean Old Testament scripture. He meant New Testament scripture as well, including the book that he's now writing when he says that. All scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore it's good for us. It's profitable to train us in righteousness. Therefore, because it is inspired by God, it is true. So here's the marrying of two doctrines that we hold. Inspiration and inerrancy. Inspiration is the idea that God has breathed out the words. Inerrancy is the belief and the doctrine and the truth that there is no error in the Bible. It is inerrant without any errors, whether scientific, historical, geographical, or theological. Nothing that it affirms as true is in fact false because it's written by God. Psalm 12 verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver, refined in a furnace, purified seven times. To have precious metal, what they would do is put it in the furnace, and as it heats up, all of the impurities come to the surface. They scrape those off, and then they make jewelry or whatever it will be out of that precious metal. The Bible is saying that to a complete and perfect amount, seven times God has done that to his own word. There is not a single impurity that remained from the men into their writings. When it touches pen to parchment, it was pure as pure can be, pure truth from God. Psalm 19 told us, which we read this morning, the law of the Lord Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so inasmuch as our Bible is an accurate translation, we are confident it is the word of God. Now we're going to do a very brief now. You look back into Mark 16, just a very brief, if you're a note taker, this is going to be helpful for you. Just a brief walkthrough and go, why are these different paragraphs in Mark 16 as they appear? So in Mark 16, we actually find multiple summaries of what the other Gospels say happened after the death of And resurrection of Jesus. So in verse 9 to 11, we have a a summary of what we have already read in John 20, verses 11 to 18. That story of Jesus appearing to the women in the garden is sort of taken up, rephrased, and put down into Mark's 16th chapter. Verses 12 to 13 here summarize Luke 24, verse 13 to 15. Luke 24, verse, uh, sorry, 13 to 35, when Jesus appears sort of mysteriously to the two men as they're walking out on the road to Emmaus. He appears to them, preaches himself from Scripture, shows them that Christ always had to die. This Jesus was the guy, and then they realize it was him and he disappeared. That's a summary in this verse, in Mark, of what, a, what uh, occurred in Luke 24. In verse 14 to 18, in Mark chapter 16, We have a summary of the Great Commission given to Matthew, uh, written down by Matthew in verse 28. Sorry, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to 20. It's a summary here in verse 18 through, uh, sorry, 14 through 18 of what Matthew has already written down. So do do you see already, this is really just, uh, a scribe has obviously gone. Mark doesn't have a good ending. Let's take a bit from John. Let's take a bit from Luke. Let's take a bit from Matthew. Make it all cohesive. Put it together. A nice little finished end. Well, we caught up with him and we know it's not original. And then verse 19 to 20 is a summary of what the book of Acts says. 
in chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, and also Luke 24, chapter 50, verse 50 to 53, which is the ascension and the coronation. That is where Jesus was lifted up and went and sat down at God's right hand. So everything that is in here is not wrong. We're not saying it's erroneous and that it's wrong. We're saying it's a true and good summary of the other Bibles, but it's not original. That's our only qualm. That's the clarity that I'm trying to bring us to this morning. Now, the most original parts that are not really a quote from anywhere else, you can look in verse uh, 16, uh, sorry, verse 17. This is the exciting part, right? Neighbors across the way, some of your old friends, maybe some of you here today or recently from previous churches. This is the verse that you loved going to when you did your street evangelism and gave out free hugs. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. Now, we do see that occur in the New Testament. They will speak in new languages. We do see that occur in the New Testament. They will pick up serpents with their hands. Silence in the New Testament. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Don't try it. Do not try it. Not inspired scripture. Didn't happen in the New Testament. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Happens all throughout the New Testament. So what we see here is probably a Christian later in the first century is writing down things that they have been seeing happening at the apostles' hands. I'm not going to say that there was probably no Christian that ever was made to drink poison and persecution and was fine. Probably happened. Probably accounts of Christians picking up snakes in, in pits or under persecution and not being harmed. We're not afraid of that. What we're saying is, is that attested to in Scripture? Is that a part of the Great Commission? Take up these promises, go crazy, pick up snakes and drink some poison to prove the veracity of the gospel? No, it's not. What is likely is that the, the part about uh, picking up uh, snakes is, is probably taken from uh, Luke 10, verse 19, when Jesus says, you will trample serpents. However... That is literally in the context. He's using serpents, the word for snakes, as an imagery for demons. In the context, Jesus has just said, I saw Satan fall. You're casting out demons. You're treading on serpents. But do not celebrate that you are casting out demons, but that your name is written in the book of life. It's literally nothing about actually picking up serpents. We do have this uh, uh, story in Acts chapter 28, verse 3, where Paul was shipwrecked on the island of Malta and he was making a fire and a snake jumped out of the fire of the sticks that he had put together, bit him on the hand. He didn't die. Everybody thought he was about to die and they thought that he was a god. But again, that was not Paul whipping a python out of the, out of the tree, whipping up a viper, slagging it onto his hand, trying to convince them of some power of God. That's not what happened. He didn't pick it up. just attacked him. So again, not, not something we actually find attested to in Scripture. And as I've said, the poison part was probably just brought up at some point, uh, seen at some point in church history and added in by the scribes' long ending. And then, uh, of course, yeah, uh, as we wrap, wrap up there, the verses 19 verse 20 is what we already see attested to, that Jesus did rise from the earth. He did go and sit down at God's right hand. And from there, he saves his elect and rules the people. Here's where we're going to end today. The reality is if, if you're a skeptic or you, you want a reason to disbelieve the Bible because you do not have faith, you do not desire repentance, you do not want to honor God, you do not want these rules and regulations he places upon our lives, if you wish to live an, an autonomous life, free from God's rule and free to do whatever you want, if you desire that, then you will see in whatever we just read there in Mark, 
In the little brackets, you'll say, see, that's enough for me. I can't believe the Bible. Can't possibly be true. I'll tell you a, a personal story that I know of a friend who left his wife and children. Why? Well, to him, he had just read an article or two and realized that the Bible is actually not at all trustworthy. An apparent rock-solid 20 years of the Christian life jettisoned and shipwrecked by reading a single article. No, friends, I think it was the girlfriend he had on the side that was the big motivator. I think this becomes, if one despises God and has a skeptical mind, this will be enough to just push it away as an excuse. That is not to say that if you're a Christian and you hear what we're talking about today and you've never heard this before, you thought the ESV was was landed down on golden tablets from heaven. That is my opinion. May not have happened. And now you're all worried. Can I believe the Bible? Don't feel a condemnation of that, but dive in. I'm saying you study and ask all the questions you wish. The word of God will always be proven to be the firm and sure anvil upon which the opinions of men, philosophies of people, and the arguments of skeptics are beaten into shape and left wanting. There is no question you can ask about the word of God either how it was written, the truth therein, or how God has graciously preserved it through Scripture, that you will not, if the Word of God is your authority, be overwhelmingly convinced by the Spirit of God that this is His own God-breathed Word. But there are others of us who are outside of Christ, who are in rebellion to this, and the big message that you need to hear is this, that what God has done not just in His Son who came and died, not just through his apostles who were filled with his spirit to write, but also at every stage throughout history, God has preserved his word so that it would be intact for you to hear the message that only the Bible tells. Only the Bible contains in it the salvation, the truth that you need for salvation, that the eternal God who made the world against whom we have all sinned and fallen short of his standards against whom we all have sinned and fallen under his judgment and condemnation. That God has come into the world in the person of his son to take upon himself our sin, to take upon himself the guilt that we had built up for ourselves and drunk the wrath of God for us so that by faith in him, we have eternal life instead of going to hell. We have forgiveness and adoption and redemption and love from God instead of the curse that we deserved. When Jesus rose from the grave, he sealed all of those promises in himself. When he sent out his disciples to preach, the goal was that even in days like today, you, thousands of years later, will hear this proclamation, have in your heart a confidence in the the saving power of Jesus' blood, believe it, and today be freed from your sins. Join the family of God and never fall under God's judgment again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word that you have breathed out by your spirit through the apostles. We thank you for the way that you have preserved the word of God for the people of God throughout history. We thank you so much that we can, we can even if this is new to us, and even this is a, a different type of, of uh, a sermon that we are used to, Lord God, we thank you that we can come to Scripture and be overwhelmingly confident as the Spirit attests to us and as it speaks in, this, in, a, in a self-attesting, powerful way. As we, as we open it and read it and understand it, we are sure, Lord God, that this is the triune God speaking to us. 
We thank you that historically you, you have given us reason to be able to be confident in this. We thank you for the ability to study history and manuscript evidence and all of this. But Lord God, we thank you primarily that today we are gathered in the name and under the blood and in the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that we can call on him to save us and to continually bring us and keep us in the Lord God's love. We thank you, Father, that you do not throw us away when we fall into periods of doubt. You do not cast us off when we fall into patterns of sin. You do not reject us when we are less than we ought to be. But even today, as we regather, we, we are re-reminded and renewed afresh that there is mercy every morning. There is more grace in the, in the blood of Jesus and the love of God than there is sin in us. Father God, please restore each one of us. Please bring into our into our our spiritual family, more people. Please save souls this very morning, those who are under the condemnation of their sin. Please bring them to you, Lord. Please save them and give them your grace. We thank you for your word and your son and the gospel. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. And everybody said...